Product contamination continues to occur in Chinese factories and elsewhere, endangering consumers' health and costing companies hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. What's going on? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. Recently, we learned of the resignation of Robert Lynch, chief executive officer of Lumber Liquidators, which is facing criminal charges over the presence of formaldehyde in flooring sourced from China. In addition, it faces huge losses in sales and brand value. But Lumber Liquidators is far from the only company to be found in violation of product quality standards. We continue to see problems in areas such as home furnishings, toys, and consumer electronics manufactured in China and other offshore locations. Clearly, there's a lack of oversight by merchandisers of their multi-tier supply chains. They don't seem to know what their suppliers are doing. Today, I speak with two executives of Riverwood Solutions: Executive Chairman Ron Keith and Chief Operating Officer Mark Medlin. They talk about where manufacturers are falling short in this area. And they provide us with some very specific tips on how companies can adhere to the mantra of trust but verify. So here is my conversation with Ron Keith and Mark Medlin. Well, Ron Keith, welcome to the program. Hey, Bob, it's good to be here. And Mark Medlin, also welcome.、Uh, good morning. So we're going to be talking about problems in manufacturing overseas, product contamination, product defects that cause all kinds of problems at this end in terms of corporate profits and brand image as well. I want to start just by asking you, how do products become contaminated or defective? Where are the big gaps that cause such things to happen? Well, Bob, I think there's a number of different ways these things happen, and you know there's a difference between contamination and defective. So, if we look at the most recent, you know, highly public issue around this, it was a contamination type of issue、um, suffered by lumber liquidators, and the contaminants specifically were certain carcinogenic chemicals that really are used in the process. They're not truly meant to be. Part of the product as much as they are part of the processing and the laminating process. So there are a couple of ways these things happen. One is the processes used might either be unauthorized or out of control or not well managed. On the product side, it can be defective materials themselves getting into the supply chain, and that can happen, you know, at a number of different places if you have a multi-tiered supply chain. Interesting. You should mention process because I would imagine that would be tougher to police, and so much of the attention is based on product content. Do you think that a number of companies overlook the process thing, and maybe indeed that's what lumber liquidators did? I think so. You know, there's a couple of different models for 
subcontracting. Let me go through a couple of them. There's a, a traditional contract manufacturing model where the OEM or the brand owner specifies everything there is to specify about the product. And what they are contracting for typically is a manufacturing service. So here's my product. Here's the specifications. I am just paying you to perform a manufacturing service. And then there's an ODM type of model or an original design and manufacturer where what is being contracted for is the product itself. So the brand owning enterprise, the person who's probably retailing the product is going to a supplier typically in Asia, that is responsible for not only the design of the product, but the manufacturer. And so how you manage these things varies quite a bit depending on what is the unit that you're transacting. Are you transacting for services or are you transacting for a product? If you're transacting for services, you want to specify certain controls around the process and things like that. Typically, however, if you're contracting for a product, what you're specifying is the quality parameters around the delivery of that product. And that leaves a big gap for problems in the process, especially if those problems in the process can manifest themselves in the final product as residues, contaminants, things like that. So do you think companies even address that up front? Are they aware to the extent that process can actually be a risk? Or do they put that into the language and it just gets ignored or overlooked by the manufacturer or the sub? I think all of the above, Bob. So there are different, you know, all different tiers of of customers that are importing products and having products manufactured and buying products offshore. And there's different levels of sophistication and different levels of controls. You know, I think one of the things that happens specifically, again, with lumber liquidators is when they're looking at the product and they're looking at how their customers make a purchasing decision. You know, how do people buy flooring? And I think people buy flooring based on the aesthetics of the flooring and the price of the flooring. And, you know, laminated flooring is not exactly an implantable, you know, cardiac defibrillator. So the level of attention that is probably paid to various quality control measures at different tiers in the manufacturing process is probably quite a bit less than you would for, you know, a class three medical device or a high rel aerospace component or something like that. So I think they were caught, you know, very much by surprise that, you know, something that isn't specified could really become this big of a public problem. And so part of it is, you know, people try and understand the customer behavior and what's really important to them. And they forget about things that, are kind of assumed to not be able to happen. And so they don't put any real process controls around those things. I guess the other thing I keep wondering, though, and if we get to the actual ingredients portion, uh, the lead that shows up in toys or the paint that's, uh, that shows up in a particular type of toy like Mattel has experienced in the past, there's so much attention being paid to this these days. It's in the news all the time. Companies have their supplier codes and their quality codes and their codes of conduct, performance standards, and yet it keeps on happening. And I'm just wondering, what's going wrong here? What's the disconnect? Nobody wants this to happen. Why does it keep happening? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I actually think it is probably happening less than it was perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. 
But when you hear about it, you typically hear about something that is quite quite high profile. And if you look at just the sheer volume of products that are coming from overseas, you know, a couple of you know quick statistics. You know, we do a lot of work in China. You know, more than half of our employees are in China. This is a big part of what we do. Uh, let me put some numbers around China. There are 22 million factories in China. And it's just a staggering number. Plus, you know, from a geographic perspective, I mean, China is one of the you know, most you know, geographically largest countries in the world. So there's just a lot of ground to cover overall. So on top of that, look at what we import just from China, not from Southeast Asia, but just from China. You know, we are importing, you know, 40, 42 billion dollars a month worth of product. So there's an awful lot of surveillance that needs to happen. And I think different companies are more set up to do some of the surveillance. You know, one of the things that I think contributes to it and continues to bite companies when they don't manage it properly is what they communicate to their suppliers and how they manage their suppliers and what is the relationship to their suppliers. Nobody is really going to China to buy specific high-end branded products. And in fact, most Americans probably cannot name a single Chinese brand. What people in the U.S. and Western Europe go to China for, for the most part, is for low-cost manufacturing. And so what ends up in China are things that are reasonably cost-sensitive. Most of these suppliers are managed by supply chain managers or supply chain directors or sourcing managers. And those people get paid primarily and bonus primarily on PPV or purchase price variance. How quickly am I driving down the cost of what I'm buying relative to the standard cost that I have set? And so there are a lot of things built into the system that really encourage these manufacturers to drive to the lowest possible cost. And sometimes there is or can be this view of, I don't necessarily want to know too much. Here are my specifications. Here are my test criteria. Here's my acceptance plan. Here's what I'm going to do. And I just want to make sure that my material keeps flowing and it is flowing at a, a very low price. And, and they don't want a lot of disruptions. They just want things to flow and they want the price to drop very, very quickly. And so they train, if you will, their suppliers on how they want them to behave. If you meet with your suppliers a couple of times a year, and if you say 10 different things to your supplier, and eight of them are about cost, and two of them are about delivery, you know, that supplier, especially in China, where they have a very hierarchical structure and a very you know, large power distance, uh, which is a cultural term about you know, how people communicate within different cultures, when you have those conversations and what they keep hearing is price, 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 delivery, they learn that the thing that you are going to measure them most on is how quickly you are dropping that price. And so I don't know exactly what happened, Mattel, but you know, maybe the price of titanium dioxide went up and maybe the supplier wasn't feeling comfortable going to Mattel and say, you know, titanium dioxide's going up and my paint cost is going up and I need to charge you an extra 12 cents a unit. So maybe they just said, you know, look, this purple paint looks just like this purple paint. It's got the same specifications, same adhesion, the same gloss. We'll just do this. You know, it's rarely malicious when companies do this. It, it's usually something that they've kind of been trained on. And occasionally it is, you know, people trying to cut corners and put extra money in their pocket. 
But the companies that do a really good job of this make it safe for their suppliers to communicate to them and talk to them about issues. And those issues might be, I'm having trouble getting this material, or it might be the cost of this material has gone up and we need to talk about my compensation, things like that. And, you know, when you talk to your supplier, you should you should have a balanced conversation. If you're talking to them about 10 things, you should talk three times about quality and three times about delivery and three times about price. Uh, you know, just always be hammering on that price. Could you talk about the challenges of maintaining quality in a multi-tier supply chain? Maybe this is more of a problem when it comes to enforcing human rights in factories. But so often it seems that when something goes wrong, a company will say, I didn't know my product was being made in that particular factory up a multiple tier type of supply chain. How do you maintain quality throughout those tiers and keep knowledge of who is making what? no matter how far up the chain that you go. It certainly gets tougher. I think I'm going to turn this over uh, to Mark Medlin, our COO, and have him talk a little bit about, you know, approved vendor lists and how those are managed and controlled, you know, one and sometimes two tiers down into the supply chain. Thank you, Ron. So on that question, one of the sayings that we have here uh, at Riverwood, one of my favorite sayings is the devil's in the details. Uh, and when companies go out to go purchase products, they sometimes don't understand all of the components that go into that product because they're just looking for a widget. Um, uh, they don't know the details of the manufacturing process they're in. Uh, and therefore, they clearly, or in many instances, don't know the sub-tier suppliers. Um, so one of the ways to go start to go affect that is to have very detailed product structures uh, that include the process, the materials, and uh, what we call you know, a bill of materials, but in that bill of materials, a approved vendor list uh, and or a approved manufacturer list, and sometimes they're not the same. Uh, and it at least gives you a, a plan of record and a document that tells you where all of your pieces are coming from. Uh, and then at that point, you can go manage it and verify, either through audits or through business, et cetera. Trust but verify that everything is coming from the suppliers where they're supposed to. Um, and I know that shady practices happen from supplier to supplier, but if you have the right kind of supplier and the right relationship and the right business relationship with yourself and the supplier, um, I think you can trust more and verify less. But there are all kinds of stories of uh, illegal subcontracting that goes on. And it doesn't really matter what you put in your contract. It's not what you actually write in a contract, but it's how you go manage the execution of the business between the two that really matters. Okay, there's that key phrase, trust but verify. Ron, I know that you have used that phrase as well. The question is how. How do you verify through techniques and processes that you're suppliers and that your manufacturers are really conforming to your standards. So from that perspective, it's, the, the world is all about levels of risk, in my opinion, um, and managing those levels of risk. From an engineering perspective, uh, many people who design products do something, uh, use a tool called a failure mode effect analysis, or FMEA. You need to understand, A, the components of what you're buying, and then at the end of the day, the risk to your business of those components. 
So if a toxic material is used in the process of making that, how do you have assurances, both from a quality control testing perspective um, and a material flow perspective, to, to make sure that you're getting the right kind of quality and that those materials are not ending up in your end process? So you have to have a risk analysis of all of the different pieces, in my opinion, and then you have to go put a plan in place on how you manage that. Ways to go manage that are uh, clearly auditing the sub-tier suppliers at the same time, assuming your, your primary supplier gives you access to that, which I think is very critical in many, many high-tech and higher-risk uh, kind of components. And from time to time, we show up on the front doorstep of our suppliers and say, we're here. Um, and we'd like to see the manufacturing process. And, and over time, as you do more of those and you build relationships and can build more trust, then you can verify less. So you make unannounced site visits? Well, from time to time, and as needed, correct. Because I'm wondering, again, on the human rights side, if you make a visit to a factory, you can see clearly whether fire exits are locked or fire extinguishers are in place or whether child labor is being used. I would imagine it's a lot more difficult in the case of going to a place and seeing that processes or ingredients are not being used as specified. So how do you manage that? Well, I think this is Ron. I, I think there are ways to do that. And so let me focus for a moment and reiterate something that Mark said. You know, you've got to create a risk profile. So, you know, if you're doing a high-end server and you've got 10,000 discrete components in there, managing all 10,000 of those is just a Herculean task. And so you really need to look at what are the components that have the most risk? And so you do an FMEA and you figure out, you know, look, of these 10,000, I got these 120 parts, and I, I really need to know where they come from. I need to make sure they're not counterfeit. I need to make sure they're within spec. And so you understand from your supplier and approve with your supplier who are the sources that they are allowed to buy those from. You know, you can go audit these facilities directly as well, and you need some contractual, you know, rights to go do that. But one of the things that we do is, you know, we will show up at the final assembly house and we will go back to the stock room. We will pull raw materials and we will do testing. And that testing might be metallurgical testing to see what the plating material is. It might be physical dimension testing to make sure that it's within tolerance and we're not going to have a mechanical failure. It might be solvent conductivity extract testing to see that there are no ionic residues or contaminations on the product. Some of these you actually want to go pull material and do destructive testing. You can test them for their physical properties. In the case of, you know, harmful substances, there are different types of outgassing tests that you can do. But you have to think through all of this. There has to be not only the surveillance, but the knowledge that there is this, this type of surveillance. And that material can be inspected as it's coming into the final process. It can also be inspected as it's outgoing from the sub-tier supplier to your tier one supplier. And you have to do a combination of those types of things. Another thing that is not uncommon is to just go look at the paper trail. It's interesting how some of the mainstream enterprise software systems have not really become that much that well embraced in China. And so there's an awful lot of actual processing of paper on the buying and selling of materials. And so you can just go through the audit trail and see you're buying this particular O-ring from this company, and I use an O-ring, but this company is not on my approved vendor list. 
And if you look at the part number, it's a part number that would indicate it's the same size O-ring. Can you explain this? Can you show me what customer you're using this O-ring? Can we go pull this part number out of stock and look at it? But there's a number of different ways, and it is far from it's far from perfect. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we continue to see these types of problems. But most of the big ones that that make the news surprisingly can be can be managed and mitigated and prevented with some very very simple processes. When you're sourcing for the lowest cost, and then you think about, yeah, you know, maybe I'm going to add another quarter of a point or half a point to make sure that I'm getting the right stuff when the whole reason you're there was to save six points, you know, it's just easy for companies to fall into the mode of, you know, this is what I pay these guys for. And I'm going to assume that they are adhering to the contract because I have a very tight contract. You know, in China, you don't get what you contract, you get what you manage. You know, you mentioned the word surveillance, which can take on multiple meanings. And of course, in the case of investigating human rights abuses, that is a technique that is used with some regularity in factories. But I'm wondering to what extent or not that can be of value in determining whether your products are being produced in line with your specifications and the ingredients being used are correct. Is it a tool, uh, an additional tool to be used by manufacturers? It is a seldom used technique. And the only time I've ever seen that technique used is when counterfeit materials were involved in the assembly and that the tier one supplier was suspected of being complicit in that. And so the normal auditing techniques didn't reveal anything, but destructive testing of the product revealed that some of the electronic components were not as indicated, they were not on the approved vendor list. And although they had similar functionality and similar form and looked the same, they didn't perform the same, which is part of the reason why they were less expensive. And so I know of a couple of circumstances where there was actual surveillance work done to see what truck is pulling up and where is it coming from and how are these parts getting stocked. But that's a pretty, pretty rare occurrence. Well, we're close to being out of time, but I do want to bring up this one quote from you, Ron, where you said, we've seen this before, and with 100% certainty, we'll see it again. Now, add to that your statistic about 22 million factories in China. Are you at all optimistic that there's any possibility for improvement in this area? What do you think the future holds? Oh, I'm very optimistic about it. There's just so much room for improvement. And, you know, it takes a big event like this. You know, if you look at lumber liquidators, I'm not trying to pick on them. I know I have no specific knowledge of what their sourcing and controls uh, practices are. I bring them up just because it's very much a wake-up call. If you look at the amount of money it has cost this company, and you know, I did some blogging about this. They've got tens of million dollars in legal fees. They have 103 lawsuits filed against them. The Justice Department is looking to see whether there is any criminal activity here. Their share price has declined to the point that they've lost $300 million in market capitalization. And so I'm blogging about this, and, and one of the people reading the blog says, how much money do you really think they saved by not having some of these tighter processes in, in place? Because, you know, the, the problem with the formaldehyde is very easy to detect. And once, you know, it was on 60 Minutes, you know, they sent these little kits to, you know, some of their customers, and they sent companies around them, and it's, it's very easy to detect this. And so my guess was they might have saved a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year or a couple of years 
And to save that, it's cost them $300 million. And so that's probably not a really good trade-off. And so as these things become more visible, I suspect there's a lot of conversations going on in boardrooms from big public companies that buy stuff in China. And CEOs are asking questions going, how tight are we? And how much do we really verify our product? And what do our processes look like? And maybe we should get some people in here to look at this because I don't, I don't want to be on 60 Minutes next. So I'm pretty optimistic. And there's a lot of simple things that, that companies could do that would add very little cost and would capture a lot of the low-hanging fruit relative to you know potential escapes, quality escapes in the supply chain. Assuming that they're not so fixated on cost and speed and volume that they don't have this other conversation with their suppliers, it's it's always a trade-off. That's what uh, that's what makes business. If you know resources were not constrained and if any price could be had, then the entire art and science of management would be invalid. So these are the trade-offs that these companies have to make. And one company just got it wrong, and some companies are getting it right, and we'll just see how it plays out. Well, let's hope so, but it sounds like you guys have given us some really valuable advice on how companies can improve their performance in this area. So, Ron Keith and Mark Medlin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Bob. That was my conversation with Ron Keith and Mark Medlin of Riverwood Solutions, talking about the problem of product contamination in manufacturing. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.